Thank you, Glenn. Uh, so, privilege for me to get to introduce our guest preacher this morning, uh, Reverend Sam Kennedy. Uh, Sam is currently serving as the RUF director at UNC Wilmington. Uh, for those of you who don't know, RUF is our denomination's campus ministry. Uh, Sam is a Wilmington native who, with his wife, Shauna, and two children, have been serving at UNCW for the past five years now. Uh, Sam is going to be at the Connect table after the service, so there's a few reasons why you might want to stop by. One, because the sermon speaks to you and you just want to tell him thank you. Two, because uh, you have a child that's at UNCW or maybe is going to be at UNCW and you'd like for them to connect uh, with RUF. Or three, maybe because uh, you feel like God is maybe calling you to get involved with this ministry and supporting the work financially uh, that Sam is doing. RUF ministers all raise their own support, uh, so they're always looking for new ministry partners. Uh, so if you feel so inclined, I'd love for you to stop by as well. I've had the privilege to sit under uh, Sam's teaching in the past, and so I know we are in for a treat. God has really gifted this man in his ability to preach the Word of God. So Sam, if you'd come on up, Christ Central, if we give him a warm welcome. It is so great to be here with you all. I, um, I've worshiped here before, kind of anonymously in the pews, and it's just such a gift to, to be here, to sing with you all, and to be in this beautiful space, and um, to be led in the liturgy by, by men like this. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. So thank you for letting me be here with you all today. Um, I spent, I am a Wilmington native, but I did some time in Chapel Hill and in Durham when I was in college. I graduated from Carolina, North Carolina. I know some people here are from South Carolina, and they get confused about which Carolina is Carolina. <laughs> Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, and so I graduated from Carolina in 05 and uh, was a Young Life leader here during my time in undergrad and worked with kids in Durham. And so see a lot of familiar faces and just love this place, love Durham. So, so great to be here. Uh, the text for this morning is 1 John, uh, the end of chapter, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. You can uh, make your way to it if you have your Bibles with you. If not, it's printed in the, the bulletins. Uh, but what Timothy said is true. I'm a campus minister at UNC Wilmington for RUF. Uh, my role as an RUF campus minister is kind of weird. It's like I'm one part chaplain on campus. We have this very university-facing approach of doing ministry. You know, I connect with the administration. I'm connecting with professors and, and all kinds of different people in the campus environment. So I'm very much a part of the, the campus environment there and a resource for students and for faculty and people there. Uh, kind of like a like a weird uncle uh, that's just there hanging out with students, uh, kids from uh, covenant families who are there in Wilmington, kids who are figuring stuff out, asking questions. Um, and so my wife and I are there. We welcome them in our homes. We're on campus with them, eating meals. And, and then also I'm pastoring students. So I'm sitting across from students day by day in coffee shops and we have weekly meetings, evangelistic Bible studies, we call RUF small, uh, large group. And one of our favorite things to do in RUF large group is a corporate confession, kind of like y'all do this morning. 
And uh, just about every week, we introduce the corporate confession uh, with some kind of explanation or phrase because there's a lot of students who show up to RUF and they've never been through any kind of written liturgy or anything like that. They grew up in a like more informal youth group culture or maybe they're just not familiar with Christian faith at all. And so we will introduce the confession typically by saying, hey, we're about to do something that nobody does <laughs> in our daily life. Everyone in our normal life walks around acting like they have everything together. Like they're all put together perfectly, like they never screw up. And what we're about to confess in the presence of everyone else is that every single one of us has done, done something in the last 24 hours or will do something in the next 24 hours that they deeply regret. And that if everyone knew about, they would be kind of ashamed of. And we're all about to admit that freely in the presence of one another. And what that does is it completely levels the playing field. So we love to say in RUF, nobody is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace and nobody is so good that they don't still need God's grace. And corporate confession reminds us of that. The text we're gonna read this morning is uh, this famous text for corporate confession. It talks about the reality of a radical sinfulness and our need for God's healing help. And it talks about the promise of God's forgiveness for all who come to him in repentance. But there's this one line from this text that haunted me when we read it in our corporate confession. And I never got to preach about it this whole year because I was doing other things like we were preaching in, um, in Galatians and other stuff like that. And so this summer, I've been so excited to share my favorite line from 1 John with y'all. Um, so here it is. 1 John, the end of uh, chapter 1 starting in verse five all the way to chapter two, verse one. I'll see if you can figure out what my favorite line is. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Hear this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what amazing news that you have made provision for sinners and needy people, rebels, failures, the worn out, the washed up, to come to you and to be known by you and to be loved by you. Lord, would you open our hearts this morning? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law? We look for you to do it by your spirit. We ask in your name, Jesus, 
Amen. Oh. Okay. So if you've spent any time with, with younger kids, I was just on a family vacation with my, um, my family and my sister and my brother-in-law have a, um, a little girl, my niece, Mary Jacqueline. She's a toddler, so she's like two, walking around, bopping around, um, just starting to talk. And if you spent any time around little kids, one of the things you notice is that from a very early age, they start to make sense of the world around them and also make sense of of what's inside of them by looking at other people's faces. Like case in point, you have a toddler and they fall down. They trip as toddlers do all the time because they're just learning how to walk. They don't know. So... They bump into something, they fall down, you know, they hit their elbow, they hit their knee, and they feel this discomfort and distress. And they don't know how to deal with all this distress that's inside of them. And so what do they do? They look up and they look out. And what are they looking for? A face. They're looking for a person's face to help them make sense of what's going on inside of them. And so you know this, right? There's this delay between um, them hurting themselves and then responding, you know, in crying. Because they're looking, and if they see a face that's freaking out, they start freaking out. But if they see a calm, non-anxious face, they're, they're comforted. And they don't freak out quite so much. So here's the question that I have for us this morning. If it's true that we make sense of the world around us and also the world inside of us by looking at the faces of those around us, if that's how God made us, when you fall down, when you morally, spiritually, ethically fall down, skin your knee, get banged up, and you look up to God's face, What does his face look like when you fall? What does his face look like when you screw up? That's what I want us to look for this morning. That's the question. What does the face of God look like when we screw up, when we fail, when we betray him, when we sin? What does his face look like towards us? And I want to look at that from two directions. First, by looking at Jesus and sin. And then Jesus and sinners. So let's just look first, consider what John has to say about Jesus and sin. This is the first section. This is really the end section of chapter 1, starting in verse 5 all the way down to verse 10. Who is Jesus in relation to sin? So John wants to clarify right off the bat that Jesus... along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, are absolutely united in their opposition to sin. John talks about sin in a bunch of different ways. He talks about it uh, as darkness frequently. And and one of the things he says is uh, in in the very beginning here, verse 5, this is the message we've already talked about. This is the, the, the genuine, true gospel message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is absolute 
light, meaning absolute moral beauty, absolute perfection, absolute goodness, absolute truth, 24-7, 365, all the time to an infinite degree of perfection without shadow or variation of change. He's saying that's who God is. Make no mistake. God in his being is utterly perfect and utterly holy. And that moral perfection, if we were to see it, it would be utterly beautiful. If we were able to see it rightly, it would be so incredibly beautiful to us because there's no defect, no shadow, no variation, no change. Uh, utter perfection. That's who God is. And so he says, because that's who God is, if, if you realize that and if you, and if you focus on that, it's going to prevent you from falling into these two errors. The first error is this, thinking that you can be friends with God and just do whatever the heck you want. <laughs> that, so he says, um, if you say you have fellowship with him, you, 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 have, you are closely united with God, that you have intimacy with God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then you're also intimately, closely aligned with darkness. Those two things cannot be true at the same time. He's saying, you cannot say, God is my best friend, and also, I'm just going to live however I please. And that's not going to have any bearing on um, how I speak, how I live, what I do with my money, what I do with my body, uh, what I do with my friendships. You, you, you cannot say that. You cannot encounter a God that is, is so perfect and beautiful and powerful and it not change the way you live, right? And so for John also, by the way, there's a difference for him between like falling into sin, committing sin, and walking in darkness. If you look all through the letter, what he's talking about when he talks about walking in darkness is this continuous pattern of, of really anti-God living. And so he's saying you cannot be ingrained in that pattern and claim to have friendship with God. So that's the first error. The second error that he's trying to eliminate is this idea that like, well, yeah, but sin is something that other people struggle with. That's not something I struggle with. <laughs> so the first error would be to say like, yeah, I sin, but it's no big deal to God. And then the second error would be to say, yeah, I mean, I do stuff and I, and I make mistakes, but those aren't sin. Like, what would John say to that? Like, John's, John says, um, if you say you have no sin, verse 8, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. If you say you've not sinned, you're calling God a liar <laughs> and you're proving that you don't know him. You're proving that the truth is not in you. So all of us have this tendency either to, to soft pedal our sin and betrayal and rebellion or to, 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 um, to, to think that the things we do to, to um, equivocate and, and to refuse to call our utter, you know, moral terrorism, <laughs> what it really is. We might say, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll take stuff from my workplace, but I don't really steal. 
Or I might take a second look at that person on the street or at the party, but I'm not like lusting after them. You know, or I'll spend some nights just scrolling through Zillow, but I'm not like coveting other people's houses and property and things like that. So, and what John is saying very gently is he's like, yeah, stop fooling yourself. That's sin. That's like in the top 10, guys. Like that. It, so he's trying to help us orient ourselves. When we come to God, his truth, his word lays us bare and leaves us without excuse. So where does that leave us when we know that we have to have fellowship with God if we want to see life? That we know that, we, um, that we're made to belong to him, to receive his love, uh, to be in relationship with him. We know that we have a problem, according to John. What do we do about it? And more importantly, what is God going to do about it? I mean, if all of us have fallen morally, spiritually, ethically, skinned our knees, bumped our heads, some to a, a worse degree than others, and we look up and we look to God's face and we know, we understand that God is utterly opposed to sin and we find ourselves stuck in sin. Who is God to us at that moment? Who is Jesus to sinners? This is what John says and this is my favorite, this is my favorite line in the whole section in this whole letter. When we fall down and when we look up, and we look to God's face, God is not ashamed of us. God is not surprised by our failure. God is not um, uh, disgusted by us. What John says is in that moment, when you fall, when you fail, and you look up, you have a God who at that moment is advocating for you. He is for you. He is not ashamed of you. He's not disgusted by you. He's not surprised by you. He is at that very moment determined to help you. He's present, he's available, and he is faithful and just, and he is your advocate. That's what he says. What does it mean that he is our advocate? That word advocate is uh, the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the, the, the paraclete, this one who comes alongside and helps, who speaks up on behalf of needy sinners. Um, the image is, is almost like of, um, like y'all have seen uh, or read To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, and uh, there's this moment, we, we I took some students to London to work with Serge, uh, and we met Tucker and Anne and the church planners there, and we went for spring break, and it was really, really great. I'll tell you about it at the Connect table afterwards. But one of the things we did is we went to the West End, and we saw To Kill a Mockingbird there. Aaron Sorkin did this remake of it. It was incredible. We can talk about that if you want. But there's this, there's this part in the, the play that I'd never really noticed before reading the book. 
And that's under the cover of darkness, the judge who understands that this man, um, Tom Robinson, has been wrongly accused of murder. And there's this, you know, bigoted jury, and there's no way that, they, that he's going to stand a chance. He goes under the cover of darkness to Atticus Finch's house and begs him to advocate for this man. Because he's like, you're the only possible person that can stand in and speak up for this man. That's what it means to be an advocate. Jesus, John is saying, is the only possible person who could stand in and speak up for guilty, needy sinners like you. Not who are wrongly accused, but who are justly accused. And even though you're justly accused, John says, Jesus is your advocate. That, my friends, is grace. So we have Jesus as our advocate. And what kind of advocate is he? John says, the righteous one. He is the, he is the perfect one. He's the perfect advocate. There is no one closer to the Father who could advocate for us. There's no one who knows the facts better. There's no one who could make a more perfect argument on our behalf than Jesus himself, the righteous one. And he's the one who God calls in to stand in the gap and to advocate for you. But listen to this, and this is the thing that absolutely floored me when I read this passage with students. When is he your advocate? When is Jesus Christ speaking up on your behalf? If you had asked me, you know, to paraphrase this, here's how I would have paraphrased this passage. Yeah, y'all, we are sinners. We all screw up. We are in desperate need of a savior. But here's the good news of the gospel. When you repent, you have someone who will advocate for you. When you turn, you will have someone who will stand in the gap for you. Is that what John says? Nope. <laughs> Listen to what John says. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, and I don't like to say in the Greek because that's, it feels pedantic, but in the Greek, <laughs> when he says, if, the if isn't like a, um, I don't know, if it'll ever happen and it probably won't happen, so don't worry about it, but on the off chance that you should possibly sin, here's this thing that's going to happen. The if in the Greek is more like a when you. It's going to happen in the instance that, it's hap that it happens. Here's what you can know when this likely thing that's going to happen happens, right? So the if is more like a win. When you sin, if anyone should find themselves sinning, and you probably will, in fact, I know you will, at that moment, you have an advocate. He is your advocate when you are betraying him. That to me is mind-blowing. That in the moment when I am absolutely setting fire to my life, <laughs> rebelling against God, betraying him, spitting in his face, he is running towards me in love. That he is speaking up, up on my behalf when I am shutting my ears to him. 
That is grace. Isn't that incredible? I mean, there's so many times where I'm sitting with students and um, they'll say something like this, like we'll be sitting at a coffee shop. I mean, I have this conversation 20 times a semester. You know, a student comes to college and this is the first time that they really have a chance to do some screwing up. They really have a chance to make some mistakes because now um, they have a little more autonomy, they have a little more freedom, they have a little more leeway. And so they come and they've, they've fallen, they've screwed up, they've messed up. And they say, they say to me, I just feel so far from God right now. And one of the best things that I can possibly say in that moment is to say, do you know how close God is to you right now? Do you know that you're very, like, the regret that you have, <laughs> that, that grief that you have is evidence that God is closer to you than you could even know. It's evidence of his spirit working in you. Like, don't you know right now he is for you? Friends, don't you even know where repentance comes from? Repentance comes from God. It's not something that God just kind of like sits back and waits for us to work up on our own. He advocates for us. He loves us into repenting. He loves us into believing. He loves us into growth and sanctification and newer holiness and resolve against sin. Like, he loves us into life. Um, for a long time, I worked for this um, youth ministry called Young Life. And I, some of y'all, we've, we've done stuff together and been at camps. And uh, at the first night of every Young Life camp, they uh, typically do this obstacle course out in the dark. And it's really fun. And the cabins, you know, will like go out and get all muddy and stuff. And I remember one time I was at this um, uh, camp in the mountains called Windy Gap. Some of you know about it. And on obstacle course night, there was this cabin of girls that had gone through the obstacle course. And uh, in the process of wandering around through the dark, they all, 12 girls, got sprayed by a skunk. And it was bad. I mean, you could smell it from like hundreds of yards away and you were just like, oh, somebody got sprayed by a skunk. And you got closer to it and it was, it like burned you, to, like your nose to smell it. And um, so I'm walking by and everyone's already gone back, back to their beds. And this poor cabin of girls is just like lined up against a wall. And their counselor has, you know, like a, a hose and is standing back, like turned, just spraying them. And I walked by and I'm like, man, so glad I'm not them. Here's the thing. A lot of us go through the world looking at people who have screwed up, or looking at people who are different than us, looking at people have who have different views, at, you know, like uh, moral, political issues, things like that, and walking by them and going, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm not like them. If what John is saying is true, he has called us to advocate for those people. Not just you know, to stand at a long distance and hold the hose and just kind of hose the culture off and like hope it gets better, but to rush towards them in love. If what John is saying is true about Jesus being our advocate, 
then the gospel is not a picture of, of, you know, God standing back at a distance, trying to spray us with some kind of holy sanctifying spray without getting any of it on himself. The gospel is the story of God himself coming near and rushing toward us like the water in the hose to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that is who Christ is for sinners, that is who we have to be for sinners. That's who we as a church, corporately, not just this particular gathering of Christians, but that's who the church is called to be. And the more broken, the more needy, the more screwed up, the more you disagree with something or someone, the more you are called to advocate, to be a helper to them, to come near, to bear whatever suffering you are called to bear, to be an advocate, to be a helper, to speak up on their behalf. That's one of the things I talk to my students about all the time. Like all this division in the culture, all all this suspicion of people who are different, uh, y'all, kids grow up hearing that and getting that from the news, and then they come to college with all the, you know, subtlety and nuance of a 19-year-old, and they just express that in anger and judgment to people who are different than them. Like one of our primary tasks as people who are discipling other people is to teach them how to love and to help and to advocate for those with whom they disagree. Because that is what Jesus did. At the moment when he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. At the moment when you are betraying him, He is loving you into repentance. He is loving you back to life. That is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for this opportunity to speak about these things uh, and to consider them together. Lord, thank you for causing these words to be written down for our instruction, for our encouragement. Lord, if anyone here is unsure about the look on your face. Lord, would you cause your smile to just beam down at them? Would they know uh, that you are present, that you are powerful? Lord, and that even right now you are acting uh, to draw them to yourself and to love them back to life in holiness. We have to ask that in Jesus' name, amen.